Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode, we are looking at Prisoners of the Sun from 2013. This is a film I've been interested to watch for a while, because it's one of those ones that, bit of a spoiler I suppose, but has awful reviews, like terrible reviews. But there's also some claims that it's a remake of Dawn of the Mummy, which is a film I reviewed a while ago, and it was one of those weird films where it was completely terrible. But I kind of viewed it in the same way I view sort of The Room or Plan 9 from Outer Space, where it's so bad that it kind of comes back on itself and is sort of good in a bizarre way. You know, it had a certain charm to it, which was just so stupid, but adorable in a gory kind of way. (laughs) Also, this film stars John Rhys-Davies, and that's an instant plus. So I've always been a bit intrigued by this film. In terms of the format for the episode, it's going to be the same as usual. We're going to start with a little background information on the film, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally, I shall review the film. But before that, traditions are traditions. It is time for me to set the scene. Right. You are an up-and-coming Egyptologist who has been the understudy of one of the best in the field for the last four years. It is now time for you to prove yourself, as you become one of the first to enter a newly discovered pyramid. However, little do you know that not all is as it seems. Not only will you have to navigate through trap after trap, but soon you will have to face the otherworldly forces of the Osiris, as you battle the prisoners of the sun.
Right, time for the background information. To begin with, this film had a budget of $17 million. Unfortunately, I did look to see if it made that money back, and, or in general how much it made, but there really is no information available, or at least as far as I could see, which is a bit disappointing. Um, one thing I can say is this film never made it to cinemas. It was released straight onto DVD. And what's really interesting is the film was originally made in 2006. Like, the entire film was completed in 2006. But it was only released in December 2013. The film is directed by Roger Christian, who's probably most well known for being the director of Battlefield Earth. Another film that has pretty horrendous reviews and is often cited as one of the worst films ever made. I think in general it's often seen as kind of a bit of sort of Scientology propaganda in a way. As, I mean, ultimately it is an adaption of an L. Ron Hubbard book. And also does star quite a few Scientologists such as John Travolta. However, in fairness, Roger Christians has worked on some films that do hold a bit more prestige than that. So, for instance, he was the second unit director on both Return of the Jedi and The Phantom Menace as well. So, I mean, okay, some people don't like Phantom Menace. Personally, I think it's such a charming film. It's one of those ones which is sort of bad, but I wouldn't change it for the world, if you know what I mean. I, I like it. Interestingly, Sean Patrick Flannery, who, at least for myself, I know him best from The Young Indiana Jones, where he plays Indiana Jones, um, but he was set to star in this film. I can't say for certain which part he was penned in for, but my guess would be he, he probably plays the character known as Doug, as there is kind of a bit of a resemblance between the actor they got to play Doug in this and Sean Patrick Flannery. And if I'm honest, I think he would have played the part really well. I think he would have been well suited for it. But hey, I guess the decision was great for David Charvette, who's best known for playing Matt Brody in Baywatches. Well, essentially, he ended up getting the part instead. As kind of alluded to in the introduction, there are some that claim that this film is a remake of Dawn of the Mummy. And I will admit, this did make me quite intrigued to see the film, but after watching it, I'm not sure how much I really believe this. For a start, I don't think the sources citing this are particularly trustworthy. For the most part, it's just a case of, on the Wikipedia page for Dawn of the Mummy, it says that this is the remake of it. And if you actually look at the sources that Wikipedia is using there, they're not great, you know, the sources themselves don't give any evidence for this fact, they just kind of state it. Also, just in general, the plot for this film is nothing like Dawn of the Mummy. So, Dawn of the Mummy was about models going to Egypt and invading a tomb and accidentally waking up the dead. What's not to love about that? It's so ridiculous. These ones more along the lines of archaeologists finding a pyramid and going inside and there being traps and an army of darkness. In fact, in general, there's just so little outside of their both set in Egypt. That's the same. In terms of the cast, as already said, you've got John Reese davies who plays Professor Hayden Masterden. You then have Carmen Chaplin, who plays Sarah Masterden. Emily Holmes, who plays Claire Beckett. Nick Moran, who plays Adam Prime. What a name. Um, you've got Michael Higgs, who plays Peter Levitz. And finally, Joss Ackland, who plays Professor Mandela. 
Okay, we have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. And boy oh boy, does this film make some claims. Right, <laughs> let's get on with it. To begin with, um, the opening statement of this film reads as such. O oh, Osiris, king who went but will return, you are asleep but will awaken. You died but will rise again. Your tomb is open. Your grave no longer sealed. The door of heaven open wide. And it states that this is from the pyramid text of Unas. So to begin with, Unas is a real Egyptian pharaoh. He was the ninth and final pharaoh of the fifth dynasty. And interestingly, he was the first pharaoh to have pyramid text in his pyramid. So his pyramid comes from roughly about 2350-ish BCE, give or take. However, I did look through his pyramid text and I could not find this statement anywhere. It is possibly there, I may have missed it, but this does suggest to me that it's either made up or it's been heavily modified. On the upside, however, Osiris does feature prominently in the pyramid texts. And in fact, towards the end of the 5th dynasty, Osiris was becoming increasingly more important. Though it is worth noting that Ra, the sun god, was still seen as more important than Osiris at this time, though interestingly, his popularity did seem to be waning slightly. So essentially, during the 5th dynasty, most of the pharaohs built sun temples. Sun temples were basically temples dedicated to the sun god Ra, and with the exception of one example from the 18th dynasty, during the reign of Akhenaten, all other examples come from the 5th dynasty. The worship in these temples seems to have centred around an obelisk which was placed in direct sunlight, and although there is some debate to their purpose, as well as the worship of Ra, they were strongly linked with the king as well. In fact, out of the nine pharaohs, about six or seven of them built them in order to honour Ra. But it is also noticeable that neither Unas nor his direct predecessor, Jed Kerr, built a sun temple. And bear in mind, they're the last two pharaohs of the fifth dynasty. Also, it's worth mentioning that some of the earliest mentions of Osiris ever come from the reign of Jed Kerr. Though, in fairness, the earliest ever mention of Osiris comes from the reign of Nuzareh, the sixth pharaoh of the fifth dynasty, and then is actually the earliest depiction of the god that comes from the reign of Jed Kerr. It is in fairness likely that Osiris was around before this, but there's no actual archaeological evidence to suggest this. However, it probably should also be mentioned that Ra himself does feature prominently in the pyramid texts, and there is quite a big focus on the king rising up to Ra's realm after his death. I suppose taking it full circle, basically put, although I could not find this statement in uh, the pyramid text of Unas, it is worth mentioning that Osiris was a very important god at this time. In the film, we then move on to the opening scene, which is pretty typical for many of these kind of films where you have like sort of the, the prologue that sets the scene and gives you the background to the story. And my my, does this prologue make some bold claims? So, as soon as this film starts, it hints at aliens and claims that Osiris wasn't just a singular being, it was a whole civilization of aliens that came down to Earth. Wow. Um, 
And no, no, that's wrong. But anyway, I'll get into that. Let's get through the rest of the prologue first. It claims that these gods gave humans gifts such as astronomy, architecture, and even culture. However, this came at a price as the Osiris wanted Earth for itself. It then claims that the pharaoh sided with the god Ra and managed to force Osiris into a labyrinth beneath a pyramid. As an Egyptologist, I can say with near certainty that this is absolutely correct. Just kidding. No, this is absolutely incorrect in pretty much every way. For a start, it feels like it's been written by someone who's watched way too much Ancient Aliens. But let's get rid of that side of it because, well, I mean, I'm guessing people aren't going to be shocked to realise that I don't believe that aliens came down and interacted with Ancient Egypt. In my opinion, such arguments make no sense whatsoever. Let's instead focus on some other parts. For a start, Osiris was not evil. And although both he and Ra were both very prominent in the 5th dynasty, they were not at war. They were not against each other. If anything, quite the opposite. Later in this scene, we then see a laser shooting out of the top of the pyramid as the Osiris tries to summon more to Earth to fight for them. They are only able to do this once every 5,000 years when the stars align in the right order. I'm sorry, what? No, all of that's wrong. All of it's wrong. You may all be shocked to know this, but pyramids were tombs. That's all they were. They weren't these weird electric things that shoot lasers into the sky. They weren't hydrogen engines or whatever these conspiracy theories say. I mean, I see the argument quite a lot that, oh, but no funeral equipment has ever been found in pyramids. First of all, that's incorrect. Okay, let's just think of a couple of examples here. The lid to a canopic chest was found in the Pyramid of Teti. The Pyramid of Neith, uh, one of the queens of Pepi, had canopic equipment in it. And even when you go to things like the Great Pyramid, which is where a lot of these conspiracy theories focus, you've got a massive sarcophagus in there. Why is that not considered as evidence that this is a tomb? It doesn't make any sense. That's a really good piece of evidence there, surely. But also the other argument is that not many sort of bodies and things like that have been found in the pyramids. I think there's been like the odd arm and things like that found, but not much else. But by the same token, there's a lot of evidence for tomb robbery. You can see the Egyptians reacting to this. That's why in the New Kingdom, rather than having massive tombs, you know, that were out in the open for everyone to see, the pharaohs were buried in the Valley of the Kings because that location was deliberately hidden so that tomb robbers couldn't rob it. So you can see the reaction to these earlier tombs being robbed. Anyway, moving on, the film then claims that a mummified guardian was placed in the pyramid and that all of the builders of the pyramid were put to death in order to keep its location a secret. Well, to start with, as I just explained, the tombs of the New Kingdom were put into secret locations so they wouldn't be robbed. They didn't really have that idea in the Old Kingdom. Pyramids by their nature are supposed to be overt. They're supposed to be seen. So, of course, they wouldn't put the builders of the pyramids to death to keep their location a secret. That would make no sense whatsoever. Also, it's worth noting that the pyramids weren't built by slaves. They were built by members of the population. We even have the workman villages that were used to build the pyramids. 
And we have like graffiti and stuff as well, which does sort of suggest that they weren't slaves, let it put simply. And again, unsurprisingly, the idea of a guardian being buried in a pyramid isn't an Egyptian concept. The idea of mummies was to preserve the body for the afterlife, not for the mummy to come back in this life. Maybe it's a pretty obvious point, but hey, it's worth mentioning. A little later in the film, Doug Adler claims that Egypt changed so fast around this time, presumably he means around about the 5th dynasty, and he claims that nomads suddenly changed into a great civilization. I'm going to guess this is supposed to be feeding into the idea that the Osiris aliens came down and gave us civilization very quickly, but shockingly this just isn't true. So for a start, by the beginning of the 5th dynasty, Pharaonic Egypt had already been around for about 500 years, and by the first mention of Osiris, it'd been around for about 600 years, so Egypt had been a pretty great civilization for a very long time. And even if we're going into the argument that Osiris is much older than, than this, and that he's been around, say, since the 1st dynasty or something like that, the film is about pyramids. Pyramids didn't come around until the 3rd dynasty, at the very earliest. So even then, Pharaonic Egypt had been around for about 350 years by the first pyramid, so even then that doesn't make any sense. And over that time, we do see the slow build-up of society in Egypt. Even when it comes to pyramids, you can see the Egyptians gradually learning how to make them. So to start with, you have mastabas, which are basically a large stone superstructure which lies above a tomb that's normally subterranean, so it's dug into the ground. Then, under Djoser, the architect Imhotep came up with the step pyramid, which was basically six mastabas stacked on top of one another, gradually getting smaller. However, what's quite interesting is the actual tomb is still underground beneath this massive superstructure. Then we skip forward to the first pharaoh of the 4th dynasty, Sneferu. He actually built three pyramids, two of which did kind of go wrong. The first of these was the Maidam pyramid. This is the first ever smooth-sided pyramid, but unfortunately, as it was an early attempt, it collapsed relatively quickly, and although it still stands today to a degree, it does not look very much like a pyramid at all. Next came the Bent Pyramid. In this one, they got the calculations incorrect and had to adjust the slope of the pyramid partway up, giving it a bent shape. And finally, he had the Red Pyramid, which is the first ever true smooth-sided pyramid. Personally, I think this is really interesting, and it is clear that Sneferu and his architects had in mind what they wanted to build, and they would not stop until they figured it out. I think there's something quite, almost like respectable about that, if I'm honest. And I don't think Sneferu really gets enough attention from the public, because ultimately without him, there would probably not have been a Great Pyramid either. Because, okay, fair enough, the Great Pyramid wasn't made for Sneferu, it was made for Khufu. But ultimately, the groundwork was laid during Sneferu's reign. He is the one who figured out how to make that first pyramid. And as such, without him, we wouldn't have not just one of the most iconic buildings in Egypt, we wouldn't have one of the most iconic buildings in the entire world, one of the actual seven wonders of the ancient world, the last one to stand. It's kind of insane if you think about it. But anyway, we must move on to the next point. So, 
At one point, quite early on in the film, Peter Levitz, who's sort of like the low-key villain of the film, I suppose. Well, I say low-key, he does murder quite a few people in cold blood. So, yeah, no, he's a villain. Um, he basically goes to see a man to get a key, which is called the Key of Heaven. The man he meets claims that the key, which is pure gold, I want to point out, has been carbon dated. This wouldn't be possible. You can't carbon date gold. That makes no sense whatsoever. In order to carbon date something, it has it has to have once been alive. Incredibly, gold has never been alive. I <laughs> know, shocking, right? I also find it quite funny that this key is quite clearly based after the ones they have in The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. It, you know, in this one, it's not so much like a box that like separates out and gets put into a hole. It looks like a statue of either Isis or Hathor. It's a little bit hard to tell. What's quite interesting, though, is that both of these goddesses are around at this point, so the Fifth Dynasty. Hathor is first mentioned in Dynasty 4, and Isis is first mentioned in the Pyramid text. So, again, she's first mentioned in the Pyramid of Unas, which is quite cool, actually. If we are giving this film more credit than it deserves, I would say this is more likely to be Isis than Hathor, because Isis is mentioned a lot more in the pyramid texts than Hathor, though in fairness both do appear in this text. But ultimately, as I said, I don't even think the makers of the film know what god goddesses is supposed to be, so really this line of questioning is a little bit pointless to be honest. And we should move on to the next point. So, let's talk about the archaeology in this film, shall we? Is it good or is it bad? I think you can probably guess. It's amazing. They do a really good job of the archaeology. No, they don't. No, 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 they don't. I can't even joke about that, actually. It's atrocious. So, for a start, at about 35 minutes into the film. In fact, I can be exact because I've got a note here. At... 37 minutes and 51 seconds, a worker smashes through an inscribed wall with a sledgehammer. In fairness, I guess Doug does at least stop him, so that's something, but but why on earth was this allowed in the first place? This is awful. It's even made clear that Doug hadn't finished translating it, so the work hadn't even been done. They were just destroying evidence for no reason. And then later on, John Rhys Davies' character orders a worker to break down another inscribed wall with a sledgehammer. No documentation is done at this point. They've only just arrived at this wall. No documentation, no photographs, no nothing. That evidence would be gone and gone forever. And then later still, John Rhys Davies' character throws the body of a mummified princess on the ground and claims that history is written by the pharaohs and gods. He's a terrible archaeologist. I know he's supposed to be a bad man in this film, but come on. Why? Why would he do this? It makes no sense. And also, using the excuse that history is written by pharaohs and gods, I suppose he's getting at the idea that history is written by the winners. If you are able to see the perspective of the other side, surely that's a good thing. You don't just, dis that's not your excuse to destroy the evidence. <laughs> that's, that's an awful way of looking at things. But like I say, I guess he is an awful man in this film. But hey, let's move towards something that has a little bit more accuracy towards it, shall we? At one point, Doug claims that the Egyptians did not have a concept of zero. Believe it or not, 
this is sort of correct, especially when we're talking about the Old Kingdom. So technically, they had no symbol for zero. That'd be a good way of putting it. So when a scholar was doing calculations and their subtractions arrived at zero, they either left the space blank or wrote a nefer sign, which is an abbreviation for the word neferu, which means depletion. So although they were aware of zero, they didn't really have a sign for it, and the way they used it could be argued to be a bit awkward, I suppose. At one point, John Rhys Davies' character claims that not many Egyptians were over five foot tall. I don't know why, but I find this quite funny. I think it's because the last film I reviewed, um, Sphinx, from 1981, I think it was, claimed that most Egyptians were five foot two, and they've just made them slightly smaller in this film. In reality, the average woman was about five foot two, and the average man was about five foot six. So... Yes, they were a little bit smaller than we are now, but not by, like, a huge amount. That's all I really want to say about that. He was mentioning it as they were going through the pyramid, because it was basically him saying, mind your head, you know, because people were smaller back in the day. But let's move on to the final point I want to talk about, which is this. In the pyramid, they find the sarcophagus and coffin of the princess Ananpur. First of all, Ananpur is made up. She's not a real Egyptian. But interestingly, the sarcophagus they have here is gold and covered in hieroglyphs. So when we're looking at the Old Kingdom, well, any time period really, sarcophagi tended to be made from stone rather than gold. And during the Old Kingdom, they were much simpler than the ones shown here. Rather than being covered in hieroglyphs, typically they were quite plain with the exception of a small band of hieroglyphs that ran around the top. Usually, this was of an offering formula. When it comes to the actual coffin in the film, first of all, they have eyes drawn on the coffin, which is correct. So, very often in the Old Kingdom, eyes were drawn on the coffin as a, it was believed it allowed the deceased to look out into the tomb. And this basically created a link between this life and the next. However, the coffin in this film is quite ornate and it's sort of like almost sort of human shape. It looks a little bit more like the coffins found in the New Kingdom, where the ones from the Old Kingdom tended to be a bit more sort of box-shaped. When it comes to the actual body of Ananpur, she's buried lying on her back. Again, for the time period, this is correct, and there's quite an interesting progression here. Because up until the Third Dynasty, it was more common for people to be buried on their side, kind of almost in like a, a fetal position with their heads pointing to the west. As the west was basically, well, you know, where the sun sets, and it was believed to be where the land of the dead was. During this time, burials happened in oval pits in sort of short box-like coffins. Burials of people lying on their back became more common throughout the third and fourth dynasties, as basically... It came about because of embalming. It was much easier to embalm people when they were lying on their backs, as opposed to in the contracted position on their side. And because of this, you do see a change in the coffin types, because, well, as ultimately they had to become longer to accommodate this new burial position. Ultimately put, when it comes to the historical accuracy in this film, it's pretty damn dreadful, to be honest. They did get one or two bits sort of incidentally right. Um, for instance, the whole thing about there not being a concept of zero does have sort of truth to it. 
The fact they have eyes drawn on the coffin, again, they probably didn't know they were doing the correct thing there, but yeah, sure. Um, but again, they also talk about aliens, they also have lasers shooting out of the top of the pyramid, they talk about Osiris as if he's an alien, or rather, not just one alien, he's a civilization of aliens coming down from the sky, and they talk about Ra fighting Osiris, which is complete and utter nonsense. Basically put, they put about as much effort into historical accuracy as Cleopatra put into motorsport. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. So here I'm just going to talk about what I liked in the film, what I disliked, look at some of the reviews, and then rate it myself. So, to begin with, let's start with a positive. It's short. And you might think this sounds like quite a backhanded compliment, but actually I don't mean it in that way. I do generally feel that a lot of films are too long. And sometimes it's nice just to have a film that's an hour 20, maybe an hour and a half, because ultimately you don't want to spend your entire afternoon watching it. And so I am going to say this is a positive in a very unironic way. I think that's that's good. Although I will say this one maybe could have used a few more minutes because some of the character development is a little bit janky. So maybe they needed a little bit more time, but eh, it's okay, I think. I will also say that when they're actually in the pyramid, some of the traps were pretty cool and quite inventive as well, as were some of the deaths which had a very kind of B-movie feel to them. They were sort of entertaining in that kind of way. So for a start, the first trap they come across is a massive hornet's nest, which is something I've not seen before in any of these films. I quite, I thought that was quite cool. Like it was quite inventive. Although I will have to admit, I laughed a lot when one man just ran into the hornet's nest with a massive flamethrower and started shooting them all. I have never worked on a single excavation where there's just been a random flamethrower lying around. I'm not entirely sure what it would be used for. That being said, if I was on an excavation and someone gave me a flamethrower, I'd be like, yeah, this is awesome. Like saying that, like, what would that be used for? I guess it's used purely for burning hornets. <laughs> but moving a little bit onto some of the deaths in this film. First of all, I find it pretty funny that the characters they kill off first are all the ones that aren't really named or maybe briefly named, but, you know, aren't main characters. They very much have, like, the Star Trek way of doing things in this film, where, you know, you get the main crew and then you know the one that's going to die because they're the one that just is sort of tagging along. But like I said, some of these deaths are quite entertaining. So one person gets stung to death by hornets, which is um, gruesome, let's put it that way. Um, another one gets squished by a door. And the mummy kills one person by lifting them up and then dropping them on the back of their head, snapping their neck. I will admit that one was particularly brutal, and I did genuinely wince when I watched it. I also really liked seeing John Rhys-Davies as a main character in this film, because, well, I mean, as has become quite clear during this podcast, I quite like John Rhys-Davies. I think he's a really good actor. Also, his character was one of the better ones in the film, because he goes from being sort of a stubborn and horrible but not necessarily evil character to one that is just pure evil by the end of the film 
And what's really cool is you don't entirely know his motivation until the very end, which is which is good. Like, it keeps you intrigued throughout the film. Plus, the script isn't particularly great, but I do think that John Rhys-Davies did the best with the material he had. I will also say that at one point in the film, they come across an army of mummies in the tomb, and I thought that was quite interesting as well, because some of these are waiting to be awoken, but basically in their current state they're harmless, whilst one of the mummies is the guardian who's already awake and is hiding amongst them. This was a really cool idea and it did lead to some tension. Though I will also say that during the fight scene in this this room, all of the action is shot way too close and there's so many camera cuts that it almost made me feel a bit sick. It was still a really fun scene, but it's quite clear they were doing this because they knew the actual footage they had didn't really look that good if you were to focus on it for too long. Further, I will also say that the, the, the actual guardian of the tomb, so the, the mummy in the film, has a surprisingly small part. I think he's only in the film for about 10 minutes, which is a bit disappointing to be honest. Moving on, or well in this case I suppose backwards, I know during the historical accuracy section I did rant a bit about the beginning and aliens and all of that, but I will say it did make the beginning of this film completely and utterly insane. I mean, as I, as I said, it did genuinely feel like the writers had basically gotten all of their information from ancient aliens. And, well, that show, it's one of those ones that I shouldn't like because ultimately it goes against all of my beliefs. But I'm not going to lie, it's a fun show just to sit and laugh at. And vice versa, the beginning of this film was quite fun just to sit and laugh at. So I guess that's something. It's not a positive but I guess it's not entirely a negative either I suppose it's a funny point let's put it that way but the thing I, I, I really enjoyed about this film considering how insanely stupid the the concept was I love the fact that the whole thing was played so straight there is something about stupid roles being played straight that's just so funny to me I, I love it because all of the characters act as if everything happening is so deadly serious and i think that this is especially fun as the acting and script is all just a little bit off in this film which makes the whole thing both quite funny and also a little bit charming as well because ultimately despite how insane the concept is the script is incredibly cliched which kind of means this film it's not one that can be taken seriously but it definitely is a film that can be enjoyed in a kind of more I suppose laugh at it kind of way. There's also other parts that I don't feel are actually supposed to be funny. They're supposed to be frustrating and make you, you know, angry. But they just come across as really stupid and funny. So for instance, um, Doug in the film, he's, the, he's been the understudy of one of the best Egyptologists for the last four years, um, Dr. M um, Professor Mandela. But whenever he's around the, um, the excavation... Everyone is just constantly talking about how he is not as good as the Professor Mandela and they want Professor Mandela to go down into the pyramid instead of him. And this is made even more ridiculous by the fact that Professor Mandela is in incredibly poor health and would have almost certainly died as soon as he encountered the first trap in the pyramid. But still, they just go on about how they wanted him to come down rather than Doug. Poor Doug. <laughs> I will say, however, 
there are some parts that are just bad. Bad in this film, as I suppose, is unsurprising. For a start, the ending is insanely anticlimactic. So you have John Reese davis He uses ancient technology to awaken the powerful army of mummies in the tomb. And you sort of see them begin to wake up, but then he's just stopped and they don't wake up. It kind of feels as if the film needed one final act, you know, where the, the characters were battling the dark forces in the tomb. But you just don't get that. Basically, it hints at a better ending and then just doesn't deliver on it. I do feel this is a bit of a shame and I do wonder if there were plans here, but maybe there was a lack of budget. That's my theory anyway, because there's no way this was the intended ending. It's just too disappointing to be it. In terms of the reviews, there's no critical consensus for this film on Rotten Tomatoes, but it has an audience score of 15%. And then on IMDb, it has 3.7 out of 10. So we're not talking about the best reviews here, unfortunately. Quite a few of the reviews complained about how messy the story was, how cheap the CGI was, how poor the script was, how cliched it was. Basically, take an element and someone complained about it. On the upside, however, John Reese davies was given some praise for his performance, which does make me happy. For myself, I would give this film a 4 out of 10. As already stated, it was incredibly cliched. It was poorly acted. The script was awful. The general concept was ridiculous. But in a weird way, I will say it's a surprisingly watchable 4 out of 10. Basically, the way I'd put it is, if you're in the right mood, it is quite a fun film to laugh at. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you have, why not consider subscribing, liking, leaving a comment and join me on Monday where we shall be looking at the found footage film, The Pyramid from 2014. I hope you all have a fantastic week and see you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.